Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth. Episode 17, Stuper Mundi. Welcome back. Last time we talked about Tancred, the last Norman king of Sicily, and the fall of the kingdom to the German emperor Henry VI in 1194. On the day after Christmas that year, in a public courtyard in the town of Lessi, near Ancona, Henry's only son was born. Because he was baptized in Assisi, he was known locally as the son of Apulia and embraced by the people of southern Italy. He was given the Christian names of Frederick and Roger in honor of his two grandfathers, and this in many ways symbolized the hopes for him to unite the prowess and energy of Barbarossa with the administrative genius and statesmanship of Roger II. The expectations were dizzying. His birth was celebrated like that of a new messiah, His reign was forecast to be like a sun without a cloud, never to suffer eclipse, and the wilderness would rejoice and blossom like a rose. Frederick's youth was spent in gorgeous palaces, surrounded by his Muslim tutors and every luxury, but he never knew a sunny childhood. At the age of two, his father died, and he was sent to Germany to claim its crown, but on the way it was discovered that his uncle Philip of Swabia was disputing the elevation and had started a civil war. Frederick was returned to Palermo, where he was crowned as its king on the 17th of May, 1198. His Norman mother Constance ruled as regent, and she tried to placate her subjects by dissolving all ties to Germany. The overbearing German counselors were sent home, and Frederick's claims to the throne and empire of Germany were renounced. Unfortunately, she herself died that same year, and the now-orphaned three-and-a-half-year-old Frederick was shuttled off to the care of the Pope. As a dependent of the papal court, his fancy titles seemed like a mockery, but worse humiliations were in store. The elderly pope wasn't interested in restoring Frederick's German interests. Papal policy had always been to keep the empire and Sicily apart, but it soon became clear that he was powerless to protect Frederick's Italian territory as well. A German force sent by Philip managed to invade Naples and, with the help of Genoa, cross to Sicily, expel the regents, and seize control of the government. They didn't bother to formally depose Frederick, but pretended to reign in his name. The captive king was simply neglected, left to roam the streets of Palermo, his daily food provided by wealthy citizens who alternated by week or month. For the young Frederick, the lessons of this childhood were clear. Success in life comes not from titles or positions, but from a willingness to seize what you want. Everyone around him tried to exploit him, Therefore, it was safest to trust no one. Cards must be kept close to the vest. Success belonged to those who were most selfish and brutal in pursuing their aims. At the tender age of 14, Frederick's minority was declared over, and he officially took control of the Sicilian government. It was largely a title without power, and he addressed his court with a speech where both his frustration and his messianic tendencies were on full display. Assemble yourselves, ye nations. Muster hither and see if any sorrow be like mine. My parents died before I could know their caresses. I, the offspring of so august a union, was handed over to servants of all sorts, who presumed to draw lots for my garment and for my royal person. No king am I. I am ruled instead of ruling. I beg favors instead of granting them. Again and again I beseech you, O princes of the earth, set free the son of Caesar. 
While Frederick struggled to assert himself in Italy, a serious danger was brewing in Germany. His uncle Philip lost the long civil war to a noble named Otto of Brunswick, and the Pope, who was supposed to be looking after Frederick's interest, crowned the rebel emperor instead. The 34-year-old usurper considered Frederick to be the paramount threat to his throne. The moment he was able, he invaded Italy to neutralize the threat. His armies swept through Calabria without opposition, while the 16-year-old Frederick scrambled for allies. Somewhat surprisingly, given his personal history, he found an eager one in Rome. Ever since the Normans had created a kingdom in southern Italy, the popes had used it as a bulwark against the Holy Roman Empire. Since Frederick was heir to both crowns, he represented the papal nightmare, Rome surrounded on the north and south by a single power. So the pope had crowned Otto to prevent that happening, but now Otto had appeared in Italy, threatening to undo everything. In exchange for two promises, to go on crusade and to permanently separate the German and Sicilian thrones, the pope swung his support behind Frederick. In the short run, at least, the vault face turned out brilliantly for the pope. Otto's invasion, which had seemed unstoppable, collapsed as quickly as it began, as the would-be conqueror found himself excommunicated and deposed in absentia. The triumphal campaign turned into a race with Frederick to see who could reach Germany first and claim the throne. The latter, meanwhile, dutifully turned the Sicilian government over to his wife and then managed to beat Otto to the southwestern city of Mainz by a few hours. Despite Frederick's far greater claim, neither candidate really held the upper hand at first. The nobility of the South, who had never fully supported Otto, backed Frederick, but those of the North preferred the devil they knew to the Sicilian one they didn't. The two kings settled into a stalemate, not willing to risk going on the offensive until they had prepared the ground. The caution on both sides was warranted. The first and only time their armies clashed, it was largely a draw until Otto's horse was wounded and his anxious attendants carried him off the field. A rumor spread that he had abandoned the army, and what started as a retreat turned into a rout. Otto withdrew to his family estates in the north, where he stubbornly held out for three years. Frederick had himself recrowned in the imperial capital of Aachen in the high summer of 1215. The celebration was marred somewhat by the fact that the Pope was dragging his feet over offering the title Holy Roman Emperor, but whether he was king or emperor, Frederick now faced the important question of where he would base himself. He controlled kingdoms at opposite ends of Europe, separated by the Alps and a hostile band of Lombard states. Either Palermo or Aachen would become the epicenter of secular power in Western Europe. If it were only a question of prestige, the choice would have been simple. The office of Holy Roman Emperor, successor of Charlemagne and, at least according to propaganda, the glory of the ancient Roman Empire, obviously outshone the kingdom of the two Sicilies. But there were other, more practical considerations. In Germany, Frederick was a limited emperor, bound by feudal responsibilities to nobles who had sided with him not for loyalty's sake, but to be rid of the old ruler. In Sicily, however, he was an absolute monarch, under no laws but those he chose to make. He was also far more at home in the south than he ever would be in the north. His name may have been Teutonic, but Frederick II was a product of the southern Normans, Palermo had raised him, had formed his outlook and imagination. Now, when it came time to choose a place to live, he returned home. During the rest of his reign, some 35 more years, he would go back to Germany only once, 
and then briefly. The Pope, predictably, was furious. One of the conditions of papal support had been that Barbarossa would abandon southern Italy and confine himself to Germany. So Frederick renewed his vow to go crusading in an attempt to placate him. The gesture would have been more effective if he had begun preparations at once. But the truth was that Frederick had little interest in Jerusalem and less in Christianity. He privately referred to Christians as swine who had polluted the holy city and reportedly said that the world had been duped by three great impostors, Moses, Christ, and Muhammad. At times, he even stooped to mocking the Christian components of his own army. On one campaign, he pointed to a cornfield and said, There grows your God, a reference to the communion wafer. If he wasn't interested in religion, however, he was curious about nearly everything else. He had an insatiable desire to know, and was willing, unlike most of his day, to criticize the sacred authorities of the past, Pliny, Hippocrates, and Aristotle, if they disagreed with his observations. He collected animals of every kind, the more exotic the better, and soon assembled a menagerie complete with elephants, giraffes, camels, leopards, panthers, monkeys, bears, and a prized white cockatoo from the Sultan of Cairo. But he was no mere hobbyist. He approached everything with what today we would call a scientific air, noting, for example, that the eye of the chicken hawk enlarges when fixed on a target, and that the customary distinction between two kinds of falcons was incorrect. He compiled several treatises on hawking, classifying birds, studying their nesting migration patterns, and daily habits. Scholars from every nation were invited to his court. Experts in arithmetic, geometry, and algebra all wrote treatises dedicated to him. The medical sciences, nearly non-existent elsewhere in Europe, were subsidized from his personal treasury. A university was founded in Naples, the only place, along with Salerno, in Italy where lectures on medicine were allowed, and prospective doctors had to be licensed by its board of experts before they could see any patients. The university was endowed with a collection of Greek and Arabic texts, so that, as Frederick put it, students might draw new water out of old wells, for his own glory, naturally. Students were subsidized and protected on travels by imperial guards, all paid for at the king's expense, and they were attracted to Naples by cheap, subsidized loans. Frederick himself wrote several treatises on medicine and even became a practicing physician. In between running affairs of state, he found time to instruct veterinarians on the proper care of horses, attend the lectures of the most celebrated mathematician of the age, and conduct his own experiments cutting open the abdominal cavities of two cadavers to discover the function of the stomach and intestines. He was also an accomplished poet, fascinated by linguistics, and attempted to standardize Italian. Dante, who largely accomplished the task, gave Frederick much of the credit and dubbed him the father of Italian poetry. He was fluent in all the languages of his kingdom, Italian, Greek, Latin, Arabic, German, and French. Perhaps that fluidity with languages is what sparked off his interest in how they develop in the first place. He once ordered the nurses of two infants to care for their charges in absolute silence to see what language they would come up with on their own. Like his grandfather Roger II, he was a great patron of the arts, filling his palaces that he designed, of course, with mosaics, marbles, paintings, and sculptures. His court in Palermo became the celebrated intellectual center of Europe, a Renaissance court two centuries before the Renaissance. No wonder his contemporaries referred to him as Stupor Mundi, 
the wonder of the world. Though he ruled kingdoms at both ends of Europe, Frederick saved his masterpiece for Sicily. The island had been devastated by civil wars and invasions, and large parts of it were depopulated. As soon as he returned from Germany, Frederick resettled it with veterans and started building up industry on unused agricultural land. He then declared war on any traces of feudalism in southern Italy. From every province of the kingdom, four old men were brought to question about the ancient royal and common law of their homes. These were then collected, edited to weed out contradictions, and used to make a constitution for the bureaucracy, defining the powers of the various officers of the crown. Everything was minutely controlled, from the administration of brothels to the clothes Jews were allowed to wear. Justices were appointed that were dependent on the crown to lower the risk of corruption, and widows, orphans, and the poor got lawyers for free. Though Frederick was an absolute ruler, his subjects called him the living law on earth. His constitution of Melfi set the precedent of written law and remained the basis of Sicilian law till the 19th century. While Frederick reformed Sicily, events far outside his borders were beginning to force his hand. Jerusalem had fallen in 1187, but both the Third and the disastrous Fourth Crusade had failed to recover it. In 1217, the Fifth Crusade had launched. Frederick had made vague promises to accompany it, but had failed to do so. The Crusaders, meanwhile, managed to make some headway, forcing the Sultan to offer to surrender Jerusalem in exchange for a cessation of hostilities. The Crusaders, who expected Frederick to arrive imminently at the head of an army, refused the Sultan's offer, but were then counterattacked and fled in disarray. Everyone, both in the Holy Land and in Europe, blamed Frederick for the disaster. Despite the mounting international pressure, Frederick continued to ignore his crusading vow. In desperation, the Pope agreed to sweeten the pot. Yolanda, the 13-year-old heiress to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, was unmarried, and Frederick was a widower. The two were wed in 1225, making him the official king of Jerusalem. Frederick promised to launch his crusade before 1227 ended. He set the date for August, but caught a fever and postponed his departure till he recovered. The exasperated Pope, who suspected that this was yet another delaying tactic, excommunicated him. After a few months of negotiations to lift the interdict, which got nowhere, Frederick decided to just ignore the Pope and at last set out on his long-delayed expedition. He landed an acre with a small army and took stock of the situation. He made a strange crusader, a skeptic who didn't even believe in the faith he was fighting for, officially excommunicated with an army too small to accomplish much, ignored by the military orders of the Holy Land and without hope of international support. But none of this seemed to bother Frederick. Diplomacy was obviously the only option, and he was well aware of his own skills in that department. He impressed the messengers of the Sultan with his ability to speak with them in flawless Arabic and with the breadth of his knowledge. When the Sultan sent learned men to him, they reported that he could easily converse with them on nearly every subject. A few weeks later, when the two monarchs met in person, the results were the same. The charm sultan agreed to hand over Jerusalem, with the exception of the Dome of the Rock, along with a small coastal strip of territory. The next month, Frederick entered into his newly won city to take possession of it. He strode into the Holy Sepulchre alone, took the golden crown from the high altar, and crowned himself, without consecration, as the king of Jerusalem. 
Despite the surprising victory, no other crusade except the first had been successful. Most of Europe viewed the entire matter with disgust. The city may have been temporarily in Christian hands, or Frederick's at least, but some of the holiest sites were still in Muslim hands. In addition, it was virtually defenseless. It was completely surrounded by Muslim territory and, as part of the agreement, the Christians were prevented from building any walls. Anyone could see it was only a matter of time till it fell again. Then, of course, there was the fact that a heretic had recovered it. The day after Frederick's coronation, the Bishop of Caesarea arrived and placed the city under interdict. The city was split between imperial supporters and those loyal to the Pope, with most of the barons siding against Frederick. The city was, for all intents, ungovernable, and Frederick left, never to return. Without him, the city limped along for another 15 years before falling once again to a Muslim attack. Frederick had another good reason to return home. Reports had reached him in the Holy Land that his regent had started a war with the Pope, and a massive papal army had crossed into his territory. When he arrived in Italy, the monarch known for his justice, generosity, and diplomacy showed that he could also be quite ruthless. The papal armies were driven out, and any who had cooperated with them were hunted down. Rebel barons were invited to talks and then seized. Dissidents were encased in lead and thrown into a furnace, while their wives were bricked up inside a fortress to die a lingering death. The war between emperor and pope was deeply disturbing to the medieval mind, though opinion was divided on who to blame. The bishop of Lincoln called the pope the Antichrist, while others cursed Frederick and schemed to assassinate him. But everyone had a sense that something was very wrong. The two heads of Christendom, spiritual and secular, should be allies, not enemies. When the two finally patched up a peace in 1230, most of Europe breathed a sigh of relief. Peace, however, as always, was only temporary. Frederick's son Henry rebelled and tried to block the Alpine passes to Germany, but Frederick somehow managed to slip through and force the capitulation and imprisonment of his heir. Germany was pacified, but the Lombard cities of northern Italy, long a thorn in the imperial side, rebelled, and the Pope couldn't resist supporting them, renewing the battle with Frederick. It took the Emperor five long years of ruthless campaigning to seemingly break the Italian cities, and he celebrated by throwing himself an ancient Roman triumph, complete with an elephant and public parade. But the festivities turned out to be premature. The Pope excommunicated him for the third time in 1239, and the encouraged Italian cities rose up again. Frederick marched on Rome, but was forced to abandon the attempt after sacking a few of the papal states. He marched west, ruining Umbria, but when he returned to attack Rome, he discovered that the Pope had died. Since his struggle was against a particular Pope, not the Church, he withdrew, hoping that the new Pope would be better disposed and lift the excommunication. Unfortunately for Frederick, the new Pope, Innocent IV, would prove to be an implacable enemy. Frederick managed to drive him out of Rome, but Innocent fled to Genoa and from his relative safety declared Frederick deposed. The emperor sent an army north, but at Parma it was routed and his treasury was captured. In the old days, such a setback would have hardly mattered, but the 54-year-old emperor was beginning to feel the strain of constant campaigning. Then his second son was captured and another son killed, and the double disaster broke something in him. He became strangely indecisive, one moment talking of storming the Pope's stronghold, and the next 
of meekly submitting. Finally, in 1250, he renounced the world and took the simple cloak of a Cistercian monk. That winter, he took a trip through Apulia and got sick with dysentery. The illness was mercifully short. He died on the 13th of December that year. The body was taken to Palermo, where it was laid to rest in a red porphyry sarcophagus beside his grandfather, Roger II. Frederick was a polarizing figure in life, and in death he was no different. When Innocent IV heard that he was dead, he said, Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad, for the thunder and the tempest with which a powerful God has so long threatened your heads are changed by the death of that man into refreshing breezes and fertilizing dews. Dante agreed, on account of the emperor's endless wars, and put him in the lowest circle of hell, the infernal city of Dis, confined with other heretics in a burning sepulcher. Everywhere he went, he seemed to shock the sensibilities of those around him. His harem was the scandal of Christianity, and he was thoroughly Eastern in outlook, both in love of luxury and reckless cruelty. But to others, he was truly the wonder of the world. Surrounded by unbelievable luxury, the most erudite, able, and fascinating figure of his age. Even during his life, legends swirled around him. He would be the great emperor to announce the day of judgment. He would restore the holy sepulcher, burst the chains of Rome, and establish a free nation. When he died in the midst of that struggle, the common people refused to believe. In Germany, they claimed that he was only sleeping beneath the Kaifhauser mountain, and he would return when ravens gather to restore his empire to its former glory. In truth, however, Frederick II makes for a poor German national hero. He was always more at home in Palermo than in Mainz or Aachen, and he abandoned Germany purely for personal power. In a way, he was the last flowering of the Norman kingdom of Sicily, warts and all, cosmopolitan, independent, and ultimately overlooked. During his lifetime, King John of England signed the Magna Carta, a rightfully immortalized giant step toward modern democracy. But Frederick's own contribution, the concept of a written constitution that would become the bedrock of all democratic reforms 500 years after his death, has been largely forgotten. If Frederick's reign was the Indian summer of Sicilian greatness, the winter came quickly. Sixteen years after his death, Charles of Anjou invaded the island, killing both his son and grandson, bringing the Hohenstaufen line and that of Roger II to an end. The kingdom remained more or less intact till the 19th century, tossed between the crowned heads of Europe, but it never again had a native monarch or was anything more than a secondary concern of those who controlled it. In 1250, however, as Norman Sicily was breathing its last, there still remained one independent Norman state founded by a descendant of Tancred de Houtville. Robert Giscard's illegitimate son had carved out a territory for himself in the Middle East during the First Crusade. Join me next time as I look at the life of Bowman de Houtville, the gifted, troubled soldier who labored all his life to escape the shadow of his father and founded the least well-known but longest-lasting of the Norman states. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.